the incredible film Women Talking inspired the sermon I'm about to deliver, deliver. And if you haven't seen it, I highly commend it to you for its brilliance and its theological heft. Kudos to Sarah Polly and her team that created it. And if you ever see it, I just want to say thank you because you taught me a possibility about Jesus I had never, ever considered before. Will you please pray with me? Holy God, we invite you into this space, the space in which we seek you, wish to know more about you, wish to understand the stories about you, wish to encounter your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The pursuit of love, the longing for love, the absence of love, the need for love. Why can these and so much more lead to so much violence and pain? Why can love lead to so much violence and pain is the central question I will ask as we get started today. When you don't have love, it turns out that you will go to incredible lengths to feel it, even if it's just for a moment. Even if you know that from a particular source where you're feeling it for that moment, it will ultimately hurt. It's very human to pursue love and to want it, even if you know that it's temporary or risky. Have you ever witnessed or experienced a search for love that can take a person to places that just aren't safe? I know I've seen it. I know I've even been there, done that, and I see it all the time. And depending on your resources and a few other important things, if you don't feel loved, your search for love can also put a number of other people at risk. It's just true. What am I talking about? I don't know everything for sure, but I do know that most of the more problematic behaviors I've ever seen people commit come from a space of a love deficit. Why can love lead to so much violence and pain? For pretty much my entire career, I have always preached love as a solution, which it is. But I don't know that I've done a very good job in examining what happens to us when we experience the absence of love. An experience of the absence of love doesn't necessarily mean that love is absent, but if you don't know and feel and hold within the depths of your being that you are loved, then you are living within that sense of the absence of love. And that's a dangerous space, dangerous for you and possibly dangerous for the people you love. Why? Because there is this way in which the perfect love we intend as it comes out of us gets distorted. Same for how we receive love. And that's a da danger zone. And when we're in relationship, when we're in family, 
Some of our biggest conflicts arise right there. In family, sometimes love just isn't enough to make a family safe. Sometimes love itself, its pursuit, its absence, its need can cause so much pain when it does. What do we do? I'm going to answer this in three different ways. I'm going to get very specific with some steps, then I'm going to address it biblically, and finally, I'll borrow from the poetry of the film Women Talking. So here, let's start with the steps. Number one, you pray and receive the grace to know that you are beloved and this is your God-given right to love and to be loved beautifully is what you were born to do. And then repeat, this step must ground all the others, your belovedness. Number two, you pray and then you give yourself the grace to hold gratitude for the places that affirm your belovedness, yours and others' belovedness. Number three, you pray, and you recognize the people and the spaces that don't affirm your belovedness without shaming yourself. It's not your fault. But if someone is not affirming your belovedness, go ahead and acknowledge that there's something wrong going on. You deserve to be, you were born to be, beloved. Number four, you pray and you source what you need to build room within yourself and the ones who do not affirm your belovedness. That distance may be a few feet or a few miles or a new address and phone number, find the help to know the distance you will need to return to that belovedness. Number five, you pray and you build the practice of consistently observing the love boundary using Prentice Hemphill's definition that, that boundaries are the distance at which I can love me and you simultaneously. Number six, you pray and you love God, your neighbor and yourself all at once. Number seven, you pray and you love some more. In thinking about what I might preach to you today, I sat with this incredibly difficult text that we get from the lectionary. And if you're unfamiliar with it, just imagine Jesus inside the sanctuary, but his mama and his siblings were outside, and for whatever reason, Jesus wasn't immediately responsive that his family should come on in and join them inside. And I want you to imagine that scene, because Jesus, you know, was more than just popular. There were so many people around him, and the people want and need to be with him. And wherever he is, people are going to know. I think it's fair to say that many of these folk are people whose relationship to love sits in that longing space. So, my point, how is this biblical? I always start with Jesus' answer. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God, self, and neighbor. And then I answer with Jesus' example. He periodically withdrew from others to observe his own boundaries, and I preached about that a few weeks ago. Then there's today's text, which specifically gets at Jesus' building some distance between himself and his family. He was surrounded by people presumably in need in the very ways that I've been describing. And I'm going to admit, I've always found Jesus' response to the news that his family was stuck outside waiting for him as kind of mean. Like, why didn't he say, bring them on in? Because instead, what he does is he troubles the idea of family altogether. Who is my mother? And who are my siblings? Ouch. Why on earth would Jesus do this? And I'm going to tell you what I used to do with this text. I used to just kind of skip over that part and jump to the good part. I would skip over what he was saying, or rather not saying, about his biological family, and then I would get to the good part where he's clearing up the concept of family and broadening the concept of family to mean not the, necessarily the family you are born with, but the family you choose. And I actually still think that's not a bad reading, and I'll come back to it in a moment, but I think that taking this reading seriously while skipping over what feels like the harsher part of it misses a really important opportunity. Now, let me be very, very clear that I don't know the circumstances of family in Jesus' household. I just don't. But one deep and significant part of our tradition invites us to imagine that, to draw the scene. And let me present to you one possibility that I really had never considered before. It may very well be that Jesus didn't want to see his family because he didn't want to see them. Now, I don't know that to be true, but Imagine, imagine what healing this text might offer if it were true that if home isn't safe for you, if family isn't safe for you, if love, its absence, its pursuit, its longing has caused you so much pain, what if, what if Jesus actually knew that intimately? I hold that question. When I hear Jesus say in the Gospel of Luke, another passage which I tend to want to skip over, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. It's another seemingly harsh word. And I don't know, I really don't, but what if? What if that separation, that firm boundary Jesus is proposing comes from his own need to distance from his own family. And I don't know. But what if the love Jesus knew at home wasn't exactly safe? What if that's why he said in Mark, a prophet is not without honor except 
in their hometown and among their own kin and within their own house? What if, at least within that season of his life, home for Jesus wasn't safe? What if Jesus couldn't be who he was without shielding himself from his family? What if that really didn't get repaired at least somewhat until the day they chained him to the, they nailed him to the tree and his mama followed him there? What if? I'm not trying to dishonor the Holy Family, okay? But I do want to account for why Jesus didn't want to be around them right then. And there's something there. And if the church ignores it, I believe we lose an opportunity to bring Jesus right to those family experiences where they need the example of the Son of God doing the leaving part of leave and cleave in order to do the very form of leaving and cleaving, perhaps, that they need to be able to do to know their belovedness. What if? Jesus' own practice with his family could empower someone to build space and safety between themselves and their family. And to see this, what if they saw that as a Christian virtue, a way actually to follow Jesus? And that brings me to my last point. Following Jesus implies movement, not stasis. Following is active. We can follow Jesus as a family, for sure. It's what I imagine we aspire to, but when we're looking to follow, to keep moving with the Spirit, and family wants to hold us in a place that isn't safe or right or good for us, Jesus' actual life models a different option to get moving. And the question is where? At the end of Women Talking, which is a film that explores these very questions of unsafe family environments and what to do and where to go, the women discuss the very topic of navigation. Now, their formal education was very limited, but they did know this. They knew how to use the Southern Cross. In other words, they may not know much about reading maps, but they could navigate by drawing on this cross. What is the Southern Cross? In astronomical terms, it's a celestial landmark, mostly visible in the Southern Hemisphere, of four or five stars at the southern end of the Milky Way that make a cross shape. And the brightest stars of this cross point to the South Pole, which means that they show you how to head in a particular direction. Let me put this a little differently. The Southern Cross is an object lesson in spiritual navigation, because it just so happens that in certain parts of the world, if you look to the heavens, if you look to the skies, to celestial wisdom, there's a cross that will show you the way. And do you know how people are taught to use that cross? I'm going to show you. You take your fist and you align it with the cross, and this part is pointing south. 
Did you hear that? A way to let this cross navigate for you is to align your fist with it. I would invite you to practice it, because it's on your screen. Take your own fist and hold it up to look at the Southern Cross. Take a very good look at that, because if you were looking at it in the sky, you will see yourself holding up your fist as a sign of resistance, that the cross is a sign of resistance, and your fist is an acknowledgement of it. At that time of crisis, the women talking used their fists in the sky as a navigational tool because the cross laid out their path, not to be crucified on their own, but actually to avoid that violence. The math is Jesus's cross plus your fist of resistance is your salvation your fist of resistance, along with everything that Jesus gave, is not a fist of violence. It's actually a fist against violence. It's a reminder that God seeks your liberation, your joy, your thriving. It's a constant symbol, something that you can always come back to, that can point your way to a home that is safe and beautiful and that lets your belovedness flourish and shine. So you keep on your journey. God is giving you everything you need to navigate it. Just look up. Amen.